So welcome back, uh, trusty listener to the podcast at SDA. Um, I'm uh, delighted to be reconvening our podcast for another season. First of all, before we get going today, a big thank you and a shout out to Phil and Alicia and everyone in and around the sound studio. And it's my great pleasure to lure into the booth today Phil Allen, uh, who was just saying that he thought he might have escaped this podcast by being the person to run it, mm. but apparently it's not true. Hi, Phil. That didn't work out. Didn't. I'm on the wrong side of the glass. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel really weird. So Phil is an associate professor of sound design at the School of Dramatic Arts. Sure. And uh, runs the BFA in sound design for the school, but is also responsible for basically everything sound-related, um, including everything we do in our vast season of plays. Um, so, Phil, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm so excited that we're doing so this. So disturbing. <laughs> I guess you're not often on the other side of the... Uh, not intentionally. Of the no. guillotine. No. Um, well, one of the joys that I have in sort of running this podcast series is to get to learn stuff about folks that I don't think I would have known if I hadn't got the opportunity to ask and the time okay. to ask it in. Cool. So, um, we're going to turn back time in the words of... Oh, dear. <laughs> share and ask you a little bit about how and why you ended up as a sound designer. Mm. Can you answer that? I, I can. Um, so I'm a USC alum. Okay. Uh, I came to USC in 1983 in the fall to be a BFA lighting designer. Oh, okay. Um, but it was a complete lie. Uh, I was only saying that and telling my parents that I would go to school because that was the answer they were looking for. Um, my real plan is I was going to move to L.A. and become a rock star. Of course you were. Why wouldn't um, you be doing that? Oh, because I'm bad at it. Uh, um, oh yeah. So I played guitar in high school. Okay. Um, I still do, and I'm no better. Okay. Um, electric guitar, right? George? Electric guitar, loud. And uh, my plan was to move to L.A. and be, be in a rock band. Where were you moving from? Um, I grew up in Colorado, but I went to high school in Hawaii. Okay. So I came here from – and living in Hawaii sounds really, really exciting and glamorous until you do it. Mm. And then it's like Iowa with palm trees. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with Iowa, but it just – it feels very much like a small town. Yeah. And so I just wanted to get away okay. and go to the mainland and be a rock star. And L.A. was a really happening place for loud rock music in the 80s. Yeah. Um, could you could you have chosen a different major? I mean, was it a really random? I was selection? interested in theater because I did theater in high mm. school, so theater seemed like a good thing. I was not musician enough for Thornton, no. um, so my options were narrow. Okay, and I had done theater in high school, and I really enjoyed it. So I figured if I have to tell a grand lie about what I'm going to do, it should be something that's plausible. Okay. So theater school seemed plausible. Remember that, students. Um, and then I got here. And uh, it was September of 83, and a friend of mine who uh, was also from my high school uh, asked me if I'd been to Guitar Center yet. And back then it wasn't like a creepy chain store. It was like just a big guitar store in Hollywood. Okay. And, and I said no, and he said, oh, my God, it's the greatest guitar store. You have to go there. So on like a Tuesday morning in September, I drove to Hollywood to see this mecca of great guitar playing. And I walked in the door, and there were like – 10 guys between the guys who work there and the customers all just sitting with guitars in their hands shredding uh-huh just you know shredding and i just and i walked in the door and i thought for a second i started to extrapolate what that meant mathematically it's like if there's 10 guys on tuesday morning oh yeah and i've never heard of any of them and they're not famous and they've got better hair and better chops I'm screwed. <laughs> like, I just realized I have a terrible plan. Yeah. Because there have got to be like a thousand of these guys crawling around Hollywood, and I'm at the back of a much longer line than I thought. Mm. And so I thought I have to learn to do something. Mm. And the interesting thing about lighting design is I was super terrible at that, too. Um, I was good. You know when you walk into the theater and it's like dark and moody and mm. there's like blue light and silhouettes on the stage. Mm. I can do that. Okay. Do that really well. And that's it. It's preset. Yeah. Okay. I'm I, I'm oh, an expert uh, preset designer. I love a good preset. But then when people would come on stage, it would just turn to amber soup. Okay. Like it would just be dreadful and unwatchable. Okay. And so I figured out that I had to get good at something besides lights. And um, we didn't have a sound program. We, didn't, we had one class. It was an elective. 
but no one ever took it. And so I asked our technical director, his name was Jim Rinning, I said, how do I get to do sound on a show? Mm -hmm. And he said, you just tell me which one you want. (laughs) And so I signed up to do the sound for Marco Polo Sings a Solo in the Bing Theater. Wow. And um, I'm pretty sure the design was awful, but Mm. I had such a good time. And it made, oddly, it made sense. Like the well, I can see it's a cousin to being a rock star. It's it's you know it's adjacent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, the, the thing about it was, I the, back then the sound booth was upstairs, right okay. behind glass, and I walked in and I looked at it and I thought I can figure this out. Mm. Like it felt oddly familiar because of being an electric guitar player. It's like I just looked at the gear and I thought I can work this out in my head, and that turned out to be a lot harder than I thought. Mm. Um, but I did work my way through it, and I did. I developed just an incredible interest in doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I designed a bunch more shows here, and then I got on the crew the first season at LATC for the grand opening, and I became the soundboard operator in Theater 4 for, like, the second play. And then they, I was good, so they moved me over to Theater 1 for uh, Luis Valdez's world premiere of... I don't have to show you no stinking badges, which actually oh, yeah. ran for like nine months. We oh, moved so. it to theater two. Right. Um, and uh, I met John Gottlieb, who was a USC alum, who was the resident designer at LATC. And I worked for him as a board operator. Um, my meteoric rise was interrupted in 1986 uh, because I was also, while I was learning to do sound design, I was pursuing a pretty full-time uh, uh, occupation as a, as a drug addict and an alcoholic, mm-hmm. which was um, super not the right way to do that. No, and I became so. really unreliable, mm. oddly, oh, at my, my job. Who would have thought? <laughs> and, and so I realized I had to get my life together. And as luck would have it, um, my best friend, uh, who was also my roommate, um, was already in recovery. Mm. And I went and knocked on his door one morning in 1986, and I said, I think I have a problem. And yeah, he right. said, yeah, you do. And he was very kind and very supportive, and he just helped me find my first 12-step meeting, and I've been sober for 32 years and 10 oh, months since. Congratulations. You know, I don't think that's a... It doesn't feel like some sort of, a, you know, it's like if, if you just manage not to vomit at work, I don't feel like that's, <laughs> like we don't congratulate you for coming to work and not throwing up in your office. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so it just never felt like that. But but what oddly what did happen is that when I got sober, my career actually did start moving mm. because it turned out when you show up for the jobs that you say you'll show up for, people are a lot more appreciative than when that's a maybe. <laughs> so, I like it. So, yeah, so I went back to LATC, and then John moved me over to Pasadena Playhouse, where I became oh, resident okay. sound engineer there. Okay. And then eventually started designing there. And then John and I, John and I, I worked for him first as a board operator, and then as a mixer, and then as an assistant. And then in, uh, like, 1990, 91, somewhere in there, um, I felt like I was very smart. Yeah. And uh, very successful and and knew pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. So I told John I thought we should be co-designing. And he didn't say what he should have said, which was some variation of go fuck yourself. <laughs> but but he was very— Wait, is there a variation on that? It seems very— oh. I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. um, but he was very tolerant of me, and he said, okay. And then he allowed me to be a co-designer with him on, on oh. musicals. And I— I was really grateful later because I realized years down the road that I was nowhere near ready for that. Right. And had I been left on my own, I would have lost jobs. Right. And it turns out that just knowing how the sound works is almost not at all the important part. And not making people angry and treating them like they're stupid turns out to be really a big deal. <laughs> and John was very patient with me and just would pull me aside periodically and say, you can't say that. And... I learned slowly, still learning, but um, but he was very supportive, and we designed together for a decade and a half, and then he finally got to the point where he was teaching full-time at CalArts, mm. and he didn't want to do musicals all the time, mm-hmm. and so he just said, why don't you do that? Mm-hmm. And so that's when I... You were well-prepped. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, when I started directing plays, I used to think it was because I was an artiste, but then mm-hmm. later on, in, uh, in retrospect, I realized it's because I like... Uh, being in control and organizing things. <laughs> yeah. So, um, slipping into the psychological armchair for a moment, do mm-hmm. you what do you think about your your kind of calling as a sound designer? Is there 
What parts of your personality are you using, and why is it a passion for you specifically? Ooh, there's a lot of things in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love the control. Yeah. That, that's another one for me. Um, I have wicked OCD. Okay. I love right angles. Okay. And um, <laughs> there are almost none in sound. Uh. So it's kind of a peculiar and satisfying thing to uh. be able to make completely organic things line up in a sort of logical way. Okay. And so whether it's making sound move in space mm -hmm. or making a whole group of microphones all work together, mm -hmm. there's something about sort of taming unruly things that, that I find fascinating. Mm. And it does definitely challenge my need for right angles. And, right. you know, it's somebody posted on my social media the other day a picture of an 89-degree angle to make me angry. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. It's like, uh. oh. But, but that need for things to be sort of magically lined up turns out to be useful in parts of the sound design uh, profession because you do need – you need to attend to a lot of details mm. and you need to make sure you do need to get your ducks all lined up because if you don't, then the moment when all of that needs to work will be on you yeah. and you'll be unprepared. And that's the moment when people lose faith. Yeah. And sound is really tough because you can't point at it. You can't build a model of it. Right. You know, you can look at a set and see that the set is going to be blue. Yeah. But when you get into the theater and the sound turns out to be blue, yeah. there can be some shock. <laughs> and and people can be really disoriented. And if it's not mechanically functional, yeah. then that's a conversation. You know, and it's like one of the things I tell my students is that when you're having a conversation about the mechanics of how it works with a director, you've already lost yeah, the plot. That's true because the director has no idea what you're talking about. No, and, and he's only – you're only having that conversation because he's now lost faith that right. it does work. Right. And so we can't, we, can't, we can't put ourselves in that position where we're talking about why a mic is or isn't on yeah. or why a speaker does or doesn't work. It, yeah. it, we can talk about aesthetically whether it's doing the right thing. Sure. But the minute we're talking about the mechanics of why something is functional – We've got a bigger problem that mm. that we can probably you know get a handle on. Mm. So on that subject, I was just thinking you described a little bit your sort of journey to the pantheon of sound design. <laughs> um, but there's uh, you must have worked with a hell of a lot of directors along the way and mm. had all kinds of different experiences and interactions. Um, to start with the positive, you know, have you noticed? Have you ever encountered a director who understands much more about sound design than you would have ever ever anticipated? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When did that happen? Um, Paul Backer was one of them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and not in a bad or threatening way. No. In a sort of lovely and wonderful way. Yeah. Um, and he was extraordinary. You know, he had a vision in his head. I designed a show for him here at USC, like the first or second year the program was running. Mm -hmm. And I... He's so affable and I'd known him mm. for so long that I just assumed that this would be a sort of a, a chuckling, mm. you know, mm. lighthearted, pretty simple. And he came to me and it was deep. Mm. He wanted so much sound. Mm -hmm. And it was so um, metaphorically tied to what he was doing with the direction <laughs> and so detailed. And I would bring him things thinking, this is great. And I would play it for him and he would go... No. <laughs> and he was never cruel about it, but he really knew – he knew that I had given him – he knew when I had given him uh -huh. the first impression yeah. and, and when there was more under there and more to go get. And he was relentless about it in a really kind way, but, but relentless. And he put me in a position where we had – you know, I think it came out to three or four hundred sound cues in a two-hour oh play. God. What was the show? Do you remember? Dracula. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. Um, it was a lot. Yeah. It was just a lot, and I had not expected. You know, we're just doing a college show. Yeah, sure. You know? And it's like you you learn in the funniest of ways, and that was a real learning moment for me because I realized you've got to bring your A game every day, yeah. even when you think. I'm going to be so much more than the moment. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, actually, you're not. That's a bad thing to think. <laughs> it sure is. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So now you're prompting me to think about this. There's the college experience, and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you and I know it well. But you've also done an extraordinary amount of work both in L.A. and across the country. Mm -hmm. You've done it in New York. You've been, I mm -hmm. remember you being in Denver just uh, mm -hmm. last year. Um, is, there a, is there a kind of a 
signal difference between the college experience when you're working on a show here? I mean, we can only speak about USC. And when you're designing for Broadway, is it all about the equipment is completely different or is the infrastructure wildly different or is it really just the same with different stakes? Um, you know, oddly, it is all the same mm. in, a, in, a, in a sort of profound way. The thing that changes from, from here to, to commercial theater in New York is pressure. Mm. You know, yeah. Just so much pressure. I did uh, – my, my Broadway credit was a show that actually started at the Geffen Theater okay. in, in Westwood. And it was so lovely and enjoyable. Yeah. In, in L.A. Okay. And we got to New York and we had a great cast. It was Mark Hamill and Polly Bergen. And I was a big believer in the show. I thought mm-hmm. the show was brilliant. And um, the pressure was unreal. Mm. You know, and the, just the number of, of sort of cryptic looking men in suits mm. standing in the back <laughs> and, and not amused. Right. You know, not laughing at the funny parts, not moved by the moving, by the moving stuff. And... That was disheartening, yeah. you know, because we had worked very hard on the play and for many years. It had taken three years to get it to New York. And to see it received, not some, I mean, you know, the critics you can't control, but to see it received by the by the sort of men in suits who were there to, to facilitate it right. in a sort of dispassionate way was was a little shocking to me. You know, mm. it's like... You know, and the and the pressure on on people I cared about, you know, and seeing people I thought of as my friends put really through the ringer, uh, and and have to sort of you know sing for their supper. That mm-hmm. was a lot. Yeah, and you know, I realized after that experience because I had chased that. I chased commercial theater. I chased touring shows. I chased Broadway design work. And to sort of be there, to be on top of that, you know, tiny mountain, mm. I realized that I had been chasing something that didn't feel the way I thought it was going to feel. Mm-hmm. And I also realized that the work we do here in L.A. is really fabulous. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of advantages. You know, I had to fight in New York for things that in L.A. were just a given. Oh. You know, in in all sorts of things, you know, personnel and equipment and time. Mm-hmm. And at the Geffen, you just make a phone call yeah. and you say, you know, you call Danny Anazzi and you say, hey, can I get four hours to tune the room? And he says, sure. How about here? Wow. And in New York, you want four hours and they look at you like, yeah, right. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Like, we'll give you a half an hour at lunch. Yeah. And, and sort of every level of production was like that. And it was... It was inspiring to be in that community, mm. to be in that place where, you know, the thing that's intoxicating about New York is all that work. Mm. You know, you walk through Times Square and oh, it's like yeah, exactly. everywhere you turn, there's – and you don't have to apologize for theater. Mm-hmm. Theater is what we're all there to do. Mm-hmm. And yet coming away from that experience, I kind of thought I'm good. Yeah. Right? I want to I want to be on the Geffen side of that. I yeah. want to be on the, you know, the Taper and the Pasadena Playhouse side of the, of the fence where it's like we're doing the work and we've got – a little bit more breathing room yeah. to do it. And yeah. that, that really has been sort of where I've focused since. If I forced you to pick out one of your professional experiences from any coast or any part of the country as a, as a favorite, you know, which one? Oh, as a favorite? Yeah. Oh, I thought you should say the worst one ever. Oh, um, we'll get to that. <laughs> you know, uh, that's hard. It's like, it's, asking, it's like asking me which of my children yeah. I like better. Yeah, well, um, which one? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was going to tell you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's okay. They know. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it, that's tough. I, you know, one of the things my my wife noticed um, after she had known me for a little while was that I go through a cycle on every show. Okay, that starts with me complaining, yeah. and the logistics, the budget, and you know the the circumstances. And then she said, no matter what the show is, at some point you come home and you've fallen in love with it, mm-hmm. and you just go on and on about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like. Um, if you had to twist my arm and pick one, the the one that springs to mind is the one that just happened. We did um, – I was lucky enough to design and mix Into the Woods oh, at wow. the Hollywood Bowl this summer. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's interesting. It was a, it was a convergence of a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, it's a very – it's an oddly very powerful play for something that seems superficially like it's just about fairy tales. Yeah. Um, I first saw – I saw the original production on Broadway in 1988, 87, and with the entire original cast, and it was mesmerizing. Wow. We had my, my partner John took me, uh, my design partner, and we went and we saw the show, and then we went out to dinner afterwards with Chuck Wagner, who was Rapunzel's Prince, who was another USC oh, alum. Yeah. 
And so it was this like, I mean, it was just like a mega wish night. Like I got to go see this Broadway show and it was dazzling. And then we got to go have dinner afterwards with one of the people and it was incredible. And um, all it was then was this amazing show. And that was 87, 88. And then the next time I, I sort of had my hands near it, um, we des- I designed and mixed it. F- uh, John and I did it together at Long Beach Civic Light Opera mm-hmm. in 1991, I think, or two. And in that interme- intervening three, four years, my mother had died. Mm-hmm. And there's a lyric in Act Two that's sung twice um, that says, sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood. Hmm. And didn't see that coming hmm. and was in the middle of a rehearsal and heard the first time it's sung, which is Cinderella sings it. And I just, it knocked me over and I was just weeping at the console. Oh, my God. And because, you know, that happens. And then um, I've been sort of around the show a lot. I've designed it several times, designed it once here, um, yeah. mixed it several times, uh, overseen students doing it. And then I was asked to do it this summer, and I was really excited. It was a director I worked with a long time ago at The Taper who was really great. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is that in that next sort of interval, um, my kids grew up. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole theme in the show about children, and children will listen. You know, be careful the things you say. Children will listen. And knowing that there was that sort of emotional hand grenade of people leave you halfway through the woods mm-hmm. i sort of navigated that pretty well right up until you know <laughs> careful of things you say yeah, children right. will listen and you i realized gone again my children grew up right like they're they're wow. gone and i love them so but they moved out and they have lives and it's so that emotional sort of trajectory was incredible and then the production we did was dazzling mm. you know they brought this sort of incredible cast together of you know, Broadway and film and TV um, luminaries. And it's Sondheim, and it was the first time the Bull does a musical every summer. It was the first one in in 13 years that they had done Sondheim. Wow. And they were nervous, Uh and so they added an extra week of rehearsal, which usually there's only one week, and then you you put the show up, which is terrifying. And two weeks for Into the Woods is asking a lot, Mm -hmm. but it's so much better than one week. Mm -hmm. And... Interestingly, you know, you you have no idea until you put a group of people together in a room what they're going to be like. This group of people all instantly liked each other and had just great camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And they just dove into the material and loved it and committed to it fully. And so we had this just dazzling ensemble of really incredible actors and an amazing orchestra, an amazing musical musical director. And so the whole show was really... um, just kind of magical. Mm. And, and the ball, is it fully produced with sets and oh costumes, yeah. the whole oh shebang? yeah. Yeah, right. fully staged. And the enormity of the bowl yeah. creates all sorts of both headaches and opportunities. Right. Um, there's a whole section of Act 2 where there's, not to spoil the plot, um, hmm. where there's a giant stomping about. Oh, yeah, sure. And in a proscenium theater, you can't do anything with that right. because obviously you, giants are really large. Yeah. So you can't have one. Um, so they're sort of, you know, tough on you. Right. So there's a lot of, in proscenium production, there's a lot of staring off into the distance. Sure. But at the bowl, that distance is right there. I right. Mean, you know, well, there's a giant. It ought to be here. So we had this brilliant projections design that had the giant as a shadow huh. that silhouetted that walked across the bowl and then was animated. Oh, I see. And uh, it was Whoopi Goldberg who did the part. So... I got to fly to New York in May and record Whoopi for this. And then we got to make the the synthesis of of her voice and sound effects and video projection and the actors on stage and the music. And all of it was pretty cool yeah. and, and pretty exciting. And it, it made a pretty it made a pretty spectacular impression, not just because Whoopi's an incredibly funny and, and engaging actor, but also because of the way the director and, and the design team sort of brought it all to life. It made those moments in the show, given the scale of the venue, mm. sort of pay off, mm. which was exciting. So are you able to bring your students into those kind of experiences? Uh, we had an all-USC sound design sound department. Yay. Um, we had uh, two alumni, Stephen Jensen uh, and Ethan Zeitman, assisted. And then our sound design intern with Joy Cheever, who's one of our junior class sound designers uh, right now. So, mm. so yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. So uh, has your feeling about 
teaching shifted over the years? I mean, you know, it's, clearly it's still very practical. You're, you're working in the business. You can bring your students in to assist you, and then that helps to launch their careers. So that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I guess that could have been true 10 or 15 years ago as mm -hmm. well. But just as you mature and, or frankly, get older, do you... Um, <laughs> why did you... What? <laughs> why did I say that? I'm not thinking about it, I promise. <laughs> um, yeah, do you feel any differently now than you did when you first started teaching? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> I mean, I think the thing that, that grows over time is the gratitude. Hmm. Um, being able hmm. to be around people, you know, Duncan Mahoney and I have this joke that, that we tell every year that, you know, it's like nobody forces their kids to go to theater school. Hmm. Um, and to get into USC is really hard. Hmm. And to convince your parents that you should be going to USC and going to theater school has got to be mind-boggling. Yeah. And then also sound design, which is a really peculiar and sort of narrow field mm -hmm. of interest. So the kids are really, I mean, nobody stumbles in here. Hmm. Nobody accidentally comes in and mm -hmm. says, hey, I want to check this out. Yeah. You know, it's like they, they come in the door really excited and really committed and really gung-ho to start working. And for me, there's just it, there's enormous gratitude that I get to work with these kids at this point in their life, that I get to, you know, watch them go from people who are learning mm. to people who have an actual voice. Mm. And there's this amazing moment in the trajectory of every single student we've had in this program um, where at some point, sophomore year, junior year, I walk in and I hear something they did mm -hmm. in a production and I realize I don't know how they did that. Hmm. And it's amazing because when you don't know, when you're a sound designer and you hear sound and you don't know how that happened, that's impressive. Like yeah. you're like, I don't know what you just did that made that do that. That was neat. <laughs> and and that's exciting because you think, you know, all I want to do is teach you how to do what I know how to do. Hmm. And then you teach them that, and then it turns out they all also have their own voice and their own perspective and their own ideas and their own emotional integrity that they bring to the storytelling. And then you hear that become part of their ability, and it's incredible. Mm. And, you know, it's it's amazing because the students who've come out of here, none of them design sound like I do. Mm. They all design sound in a unique and very interesting and sort of original and exciting way. And they've all pursued somewhat different paths. Mm. And, you know, all of that is, you know, how can you not just be incredibly grateful to be a part of that, to be around that? It's really, it's amazing. It's awesome. You talked about the, um, the way that the students will flourish and become themselves through their work, which I mm -hmm. understand very well. One thing I probably, well, I don't know, we'll find out. Maybe I don't understand or couldn't predict is, uh, are there... Are there um, obstacles or struggles that are specific to the world of sound design that a lot of students have to encounter and move mm -hmm. through? Can mm -hmm. you describe one or some of those? Um, the hard thing is the can't see it part. Oh, the can't see it part is is can be death defying. Mm. Um, you know, sound systems and uh, sound technology is really just a lot of different ways of turning things off. Mm. You know, when you go home and you turn your television on and off, there's a power switch and there's a volume control. Mm -hmm. And now that we've all kind of gotten used to it, there's also an input selector. Mm. So I'm watching my cable box or I'm watching my Apple TV or I'm watching my DVD player. Um, a sound console is 1,500 of those things oh all stacked up from one end to the other. And so the number of ways you can defeat the 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 sound from coming out of anything <laughs> is is really daunting. Yeah. And there's a thing about, you know, learning how to make it work mm. that I can't help with. Mm. That's why we actually have this this laboratory is that mm. the 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 rubber meets the road right here in this room and every sound designer when they do their first show gets a week mm. of evenings in mm. this space to make the design work. And there have been some tears mm -hmm. because it sounds really reasonable when somebody explains it to you. I mm -hmm. sit down with them and I say, you do this and you do this and you save this here and you save that there and you turn this on. You, you lay it out like this and they all nod their head and they all look really excited, enthusiastic. And somewhere in the next 48 hours, there's a heartbreak moment where mm -hmm. it doesn't work the way they thought it was going to and it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. 
And those are really hard moments because I can't fix that for them. Like, are they? Uh, are we talking about kind of engineering equipment related questions, or is it more that whatever's designed? You no, know, it depends it... on the kid. I mean, okay. some kids have this really like totally focused idea of what they want it to sound like, and then they struggle with the how to get there. Okay. Some kids know all the how to get there stuff, mm-hmm. but then when the sound comes out, it doesn't do something. It doesn't do what it says in the story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it says in the story, this is going to happen, and you hear it, and you're like, that's not what that. <laughs> And so, the you know, it's a unique moment for each of them. And they get that week, and then at the end of that week, they got to they gotta show me what they got. Mm. And there have been some, there have been some, you know, it's like I asked Stephen Jensen, one of our alumni, I said, what did you learn in, in our program? And he said, I learned to fear Fridays. <laughs> that was the day that I, that I, that I, that I put them through. So, right. you know, and that's, it, it's, to me, it's exciting, yeah. right? To them, it's awful, I'm sure. Yeah. But to me, it's exciting because when they get to that moment where they're, they're heartbroken because it's not working, I know they're right there. Yeah. I know the next thing that happens is it works. Yeah. You know, and to them, I know it's got to be like, who is this horrible man? Why is he laughing now? <laughs> but, but to me, it's like they, you're so close, right. right? It's that moment when you hear somebody almost play the piano part right yeah. and you know the yeah. next time through – you're going to get that chord change, and it's going to work, yeah. and that's that's really exciting. So, come to think of it, as we're discussing the the range of what is required to become an effective sound designer, it's a fabulous balance of left and right brain, or the yin and the yang of you know. The, mm-hmm. and, I mean, you yourself referred to in your career both engineering on the one hand and designing on the other, and mixing, and of course, mm-hmm. and then sometimes doing all three. So. Um, I guess I wonder, do you find, and perhaps you've already implied this, do you find that some students come in and they're just red-hot engineers, but they haven't developed their aesthetic mm-hmm. sort of part mm-hmm. and, and vice versa, right? Yeah, and, and there's a third category, and that's the people who n- know way too much and are dangerous with oh. their knowledge. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, and that's awesome, too, because yeah, sure. that's, that's a, that's a got-to-contain-it problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we've had all three, yeah. and they're all great, and... You know, it's for me. It's exciting to see that progression of learning their way through it, and you know, having a program that's so heavily experiential. Uh-huh. You know, looking when they get to the end, and we're in their last semester, and we're doing portfolio reviews, and looking at the content shift between their design work in their sophomore year and their design work by the second semester of their senior year yeah. is pretty neat. Has the uh, has the age of the internet and social media and so on made radical changes to the kind of students that are coming? Um, I don't know that it's made changes to the kind of students. It's made the students who really desperately want to do this uh. able to find it. Uh-huh. You know, we have we have a Facebook page, we have a website, and people find us. Huh. Are you telling me that the days in which a young man from Hawaii who's desperate to move to L.A. for a completely different reason. Yeah, and stumbled in. Those days are over? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. we get some we get some tire kickers who travel through, you know, yeah. who, who come in and take a class or two and oh, are sure. curious about it. But no, the— But not know, in the BFA, I mean. No, no. And, and the number of people who realize midstream now, mm. you know, I think that the technology and the, and, and the exposure to entertainment and storytelling— for kids now is so much greater mm-hmm. that I think in high school they get a lot closer to figuring out which thing yeah. they're passionate about. Yeah. Um, I just didn't have that chance. Yeah. You know, when I was in high school, there was one kid who knew how the sound system worked and he had a key to it. And yeah. I never, you know, it's like he seemed like he, he had it together. Right. So, you know what I mean? So it's like I don't know that I even thought of it as a thing. Yeah. And, you know, now I think in high school I see the work they do and it's it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's stuff that I would have been super excited to do in college mm-hmm. yeah. and they're doing yeah. it in high school. So, I'm just thinking um, in the design and production area as a whole at the school in the last several years, I've been regularly having conversations with alumni who are frequently keen to establish two complementary but contrasting facts. One is that a education in the theater is fundamental to their future success. Mm-hmm. But the other is that their actual professional lives are not always related to the theater, mm-hmm. to, in some cases, never at all, you know, yep. move off into other areas. Mm-hmm. So do you see that pattern with your sound designers? And some, what, yeah. what do they do if they're not 
you know, um, continuing as theater designers. Yeah, I mean, we have a couple who are working as engineers okay. who, are, who are actually mixing sound. Okay. Um, we have one who's doing uh, work in video gaming. Oh, yeah. And design for gaming. It's interesting. Gaming is, is a really, I think, um, potent crossover mm-hmm. for theater. And uh, a friend of mine who was the head of sound design at Sony mm. um, was a theater designer. And I mm. worked with him on a show at the Amundsen, and I... You know, I asked him why video games, yeah. and he said, um, "He said oddly, it it's the closest translation in sort of electronic media to being in theater." Hmm. And he said that interestingly, in sound, um, people who come from motion picture post production tend to not do as well in gaming in sound design hmm. as theater sound. And he said, if you think about it, it makes sense. He said, in film, everything is completely linear. Mm. Everything goes against a clock, mm-hmm. and the clock is preset when you get it. As a sound designer in film, you aren't part of the editorial. The editorial's done. Sure. So you are working against a fixed clock, but in a game, you have to design an environment that responds to the player. Uh-huh. And in theater, we don't control the clock. Yeah, sure. We have actors who go on right. stage, and they do what they do. Right. And the exciting and also challenging thing is sometimes they do it for longer than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes much shorter. Yeah. And so if you're creating, you know, elements that go with that story, they have to be fluid and they have to be malleable and they have to be organic enough to change with the action. Mm. And the other thing that, that uh, my friend from Sony told me is that the production process in gaming is very similar to the theater timeline. Mm. A lot of people often silos oh, working see. on their own. And then they all converge when the game has to be compiled. Uh-huh. And there's this process that's not unlike tech uh-huh. where everything goes into the computer and it all has to work. Uh-huh. And if it doesn't, everyone's on board and everyone has to fix what their part is right now right. because we're up against the deadline. Right. So it's not like film where when you're in the post-production audio phase, that's what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. We're not doing we're that just, and as long as it lasts. three other things. Yeah. We're just doing that. But when you get to that last stage before a game is, is compiled and released, if if the visuals break, if mm. the audio breaks, whatever breaks, everyone's on board right now. Everyone's everyone's in the hot seat because everything has to end. And when one department changes something, there can be a ripple through to everyone else. And so what Kurt, my friend at Tony, told me is that there's really much more sort of uh, translation of the theater process for that mm. than there is the film process. Mm. He said, so theater people seem to roll in that environment much more smoothly mm. than film post-production people do. So I think that's one of the reasons why our we have a lot of design crossover between our active yeah. students and the designers in the video game program. So. Yeah. Can a person come out of this program, I'm only just thinking of this question right now, uh, come out of this program and eventually wind up in film and television? Or is that a really different set of skills? You know, oddly, I didn't used to think so. Uh-huh. And um, I taught briefly at another school. Uh-huh. Um, we won't talk about it. Hmm. Um, and one of my students there was a master's student, um, was a theater sound designer. And she told me very cavalierly that she wanted to do theater and film. And I laughed. <laughs> And I said, oh, you have to pick one. Uh-huh. And she said, no, I'm going to do both. And I laughed again at uh-huh. this 20-year-old. It's like, ha, ha, ha. And um, it turns out that in between when I was a student and when she was a student, <laughs> technology had uh, changed. What do you know? And the interesting thing is that the technology has become really similar and in some cases exactly the same. We use a lot of the same software that they use in video game design and post-production. And so she was able, when she got out of school, to continue doing theater design. I see. And she started working in film post-production. And she and her uh, now husband started a Foley company. So they create Foley, which is the, you know, uh, the hand, you know, the footsteps and the the things the actors actually, the noise the actors actually make. Um, And they've won... Uh, like a half a dozen Emmys wow. did the last seven seasons of Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. Um, and other stuff. And, you know, she continues to do theater work. She does – she actually has a dance company that she runs. And I learned from her – sometimes our students teach us – that the business is a lot more uh, portable mm-hmm. than it used to be, that you can take the skill set that, that we have in, in our part of it mm-hmm. and you can move into another area. The thing that – 
that you can't do is you can't cut the line anywhere, you know. Uh-huh. So it's just as hard to start in film as it is to start in theater. Right. And if you want to work in both, that's great. You have to start in both places and you have to work your way through all the right. – So you're at the back of two lines. Painful learning curve stuff in both – In both, you know, it's like you can't get established as a theater designer and somehow yeah, get admittance to right. – right. You know, they don't then ask you to come do a feature film. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, would you guest design? Yeah. Too bad. Oh, no, right? that's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Uh, you just made me think about something which is ridiculous detail that I wonder if you have any thoughts about. <laughs> I uh, Not that I do now, but back in the day when I would watch TV shows from the, especially from, it seems to me, from the 80s, it felt to me like, I don't know if it is the Foley, but the sound of people's footsteps on marble floors or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, walking through JR's mansion was just absurdly loud. Was there is uh, are there trends in uh, that kind of thing where yeah. there's more or there's less of this and that? I think so. I also think that what what we were listening with mm. oh, that's in the 1980s was it's true. Not very, was really not you know it's like the speaker in your television in the 80s wouldn't cut it in your phone no, now. That's right. Yeah. And so I think that you know how it was mixed was also about the eventuality of it all had to come out of a dreadful speaker. Oh, yeah. When I when I first started working, for years I worked in, in uh, a, a rental house in Hollywood that catered to both theater and film, and we had these dreadful little square speakers mm. that were like three inches, um, and they sounded awful. Mm. And I said on like the second day, why do we have those? And they said, oh, that's what all the post guys use for TV. Mm. And I said, because what? That's what it's going to sound like. And they like. said, well, most of the audience is still on that. And I was <laughs> like, oh, this makes me so sad. Yeah, right. And so you do. You go into these control rooms and you see, you know, these half a million dollar mixing consoles that are all state of the art and have, you know, 800 things that they can do. And then sitting right on the top of it is this like horrible little wooden $70 <laughs> speaker. And they still use them because there's still some portion of the audience that's condemned yeah, to sure. – Life on my TV speaker. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if that's why. Right. I think there's also a difference in how we record Foley. And yeah. I think the artistry of Foley, you know, I know that on television now, production budgets and times are better mm. than they were. They're still incredibly constrained. Mm-hmm. But I think probably on a network TV show back then, you know, they had a day to yeah, Foley right. the whole episode. And right. that, that was that was a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I only get three days. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, you said earlier, I'm, I'm bringing us home now, uh, you said earlier <laughs> that uh, you noticed that your designers in the BFA program will eventually locate or discover their own identities as designers, mm-hmm. and you're able to say that you know mm-hmm. it's not just what you've taught them, but it's who they are. Yeah. So swinging us all the way back around to Phil Allen and, and your work as, uh, as a designer, especially out in the field, if... If you were not you, but you knew what you know, how would you describe Phil Allen's sound design? He's really good, but he's an asshole. <laughs> that doesn't relate to the design, Phil. No, it, it's funny. I, I got a phone call from a producer once who wanted me to go on the road as a touring engineer, and that was what he said. That was okay. how he opened. Oh, really? He said, I've, I've called around, I've checked up on you, and I hear from everybody <laughs> that you're really good, but you're kind of an asshole. <laughs> And I said, you're not selling this job. Uh, yeah, right. Um, Did you end up doing it? No. Okay. No, and and that, not because he called me an asshole, but because uh, – no, I won't tell why. But okay. um, but no, I did not do the show. <laughs> um, I've worked with him since, though. Okay. Good. Um, so what's your question? My question is what what is uh, what distinguishes your sound designs from, mm. you know, the next sound designer in L.A. or in mm. New York or whatever? Lots of reverb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Actually, I'm asking that question. Uh, you know, I think um, – I'm going to steal a line that a that a mentor of mine used once. Mm. Um, Broadway sound designer I worked with a long time ago um, was was doing a guest lecture in a class I was teaching, and one of the students said, "What makes you a good sound designer?" Mm. And he said, I, "I think it's because I I know what the audience wants to hear most." Mm. And I think that's if there's one thing about my design work that I that I try to to make. The priority in every production mm-hmm. is to advocate for the audience, mm. um, especially in musicals, which I do a lot of. Um, there's a everyone has a constituency, mm. right? And the director's there, obviously, for the storytelling, and the playwright is there to make sure we hear all the words, and the mm. composer's there for the for the tune, and mm. the orchestrator's there to make sure we hear the oboe. And um, 
and then the producer's there to freak out and get yeah. nervous. And and yet there isn't a voice in that room who advocates for the audience mm. in the sound. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's my job. I feel like my job is to take all the input from everyone and to try and make all of them as happy as we can make them, mm. but also make sure the audience hears what they're going to want to hear. Mm. And in any given moment of a play, I think an audience member has an instinctive desire to hear a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And whether that's an element of the story, whether that's a piece of music to let you know that the time is changing, mm-hmm. whether that's an environmental clue to know where I am, um, you know, I think that's my job is to figure out in each moment of the play. And, you know, 99 percent of the time it's the words. Sure. Right? It's yeah. an easy answer. Yeah. Um, but that answer gets harder as writing and technology give us more things that we can do. Mm-hmm. Playwrights get much more daring and imaginative over time, and technology allows us to add a lot more stimulus into the whole product. Mm. And so I think as a designer, one of my jobs is to figure out when we're going too far mm-hmm. and when we're asking too much mm-hmm. and when the audience needs us to simplify it and make it easier for them to get through you know, all of the things that we're, that we're asking them to get through. Mm. And I think if you can tell the story clearly from an oral perspective so that the audience can hear their way through the play, then it makes everyone else's job easier, mm. right? I can't really understand what I'm looking at if I don't understand what I'm listening to. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's where I come in is that I'm the person who helps finish that part of the picture for the audience and, and who stands up for what they're going to want to hear every time. That is very clear and also quite hopeful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would make me hire you too. Um, it also reminds me of the Samuel Beckett. Have you ever designed the Samuel Beckett play called Breath? I have not. Do you know what it is? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Lights up, some mm-hmm. breathing, lights down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No actors? Yeah. Well, at least we don't think there are any actors. It's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's there are there are pieces of classical music that are like that. Yeah. That are just mind-bogglingly challenging. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, you know, I, I mean, I think the challenge for a sound designer is the more you take away mm-hmm. from the storytelling, mm-hmm. the harder the job becomes. Yeah. Um, I did a really dreadful, um, gigantic musical I will not name. Um, biblical. And uh, the special effects were supposed to be extraordinary, right? right? Plagues, locusts, all sorts of, you know, terrifying things. And, you know, one by one, the special effects people fell on their heads. Mm. And not for lack of trying. They were doing everything they possibly could. They were just being asked to do such a huge thing in such a confined space. And each time an effect fell out of the show... They would turn to us. Right. I was like, can you provide? Well, we can't have actual locusts, but <laughs> can you make it feel like we have it? It's like, hmm, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have water crashing down in the middle of the set, but can you make it sound like Right, right. And, and I think that's part of the challenge is that when, when the other elements become skeletal, yeah. you have to decide as a sound designer, how do I make that sound the way it looks and how do I relate to that because the sound of, you know, water or the forest or the city or whatever is completely different when I can see it mm-hmm. versus when it's being suggested to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And those are those are really complicated decisions that seem really simple but aren't. And that's that's a challenge and it's kind of fun. There's supposedly a famous lecture given by Peter Brook, which I never saw myself, so I'm just – this is only hearsay – where, where <laughs> he um, – he was standing in front of an audience at a podium in an empty space, and he said, let's imagine a play which requires a rocket. Would you, audience, please let me know whether you would prefer to see an actual rocket, you know, mm. built from scratch right there, full, fully dimensional and so on, or would you prefer, and then he holds up his water bottle and says, would you prefer to imagine that this is a rocket? And everyone goes, oh, we'll take that the one. water bottle. Yeah. 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 Um, my first year at USC, in my first class, um, my critical studies class, our teacher gave us this really fabulous article on theater, mm-hmm. and it was written around the difference between great theater and film. Mm-hmm. And the example that they used was Equus, mm-hmm. and how the magic of Equus was lost as a film, oddly because they had horses. Yeah, <laughs> yes. in a play about a horse. Yeah, right. They had horses. Right, and, and they ruined it. Lost it yeah. because there was something really special about the human actor yeah. 
with just the skeletal horse head that was able to convey an otherness and a quality emotionally that no amount of sticking cameras in front of real horses yeah. could ever do. And so the, the, the exciting part of that for a theater audience is look what you can make mm. when you aren't constrained by having to make it real. Yeah, right. you know, and I thought that was kind of brilliant. Absolutely. And as a, as a sort of introduction to my critical studies thinking, that made me, that made me really happy to think about mm. because being in theater for me has always been something you know, my father has always asked me for my whole life when it will lead to film. Oh, yeah. And, um, and there's always been something just really exciting to me about actually being in the theater. Yeah. You know, because at some point we have to stop and open the doors and let the people in and do the play. Yeah. And, you know, that's there's a magic to that that, like, well, we can't make the, the actual plagues happen, so we'll do the best we can. Yeah. And let's let the audience in and have the first show. And that's really, you know, that's exciting. And that's, you don't, you get a different sort of satisfaction from putting a film together, Mm -hmm. but you don't get that. You don't get that moment of like it's opening night and the curtain's going up and who knows what's going to happen. That's right. And we all imagine it together at the same time. Exactly. Well, Phil, did we leave anything off the table? Well, we did drug addiction. (laughs) We did, yeah, I think we got everything. We 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 got rock star. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for Let's joining. Never do this again. No, that's <laughs> this, trust me. This goes uh, this goes in the can, and uh, no one ever needs <laughs> no one ever needs to know. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for all your amazing work, and thanks for joining us today, um, mm-hmm. trusty listener. If you've made it this far, and I highly <laughs> doubt it, uh, I'll be back um, anon with another unsuspecting faculty member at the School of Dramatic Arts at USC for more grilling and good times. All right, we are out. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA. Podcast at SDA.